Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John. And this morning, if, you, uh, if you're using the uh, blue uh, Bible, which is the translation I use, many of you use these, and if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of these. And, and uh, if you already have one, but you just want to uh, follow in a version that we use here, uh, then you're welcome to take one, and if you can put a little donation towards uh, helping others get a Bible, then that would be good too. If you're like me, you got more than one, you got more than ten, right? And uh, so, uh, but uh, you can turn on your Bibles to page 1053 if you're not familiar with how to find John in that blue Bible. If you have another one, you're going to be searching all day long. So that's just for the blue one, all right? So in the Gospel of John, we began a series last week called Believe. Uh, the theme of the Gospel of John, and that's taken from in uh, John uh, chapter 20, verse 31. John gives the purpose of why he wrote at the end when he's wrapping things up. There's 21 chapters, and in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, But these are written, everything that he had written previously, he said, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So, that's why we're calling this Believe, because the whole Gospel of John is about believing that Jesus is the Son of God, believing uh, and having confidence. Now, John is a little different. You know, there's four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very similar. And uh, they, while they don't follow a line-by-line chronological uh, day-to-day, in a way, you could kind of compare them like a video of the life of Jesus. They're a little bit more of a timeline. John is more of like snapshots, you know, and John uh, has taken the snapshots of Jesus' life and put them in this album for us, all right? You know, in a video, you can't, you know, they have to stop it and study frame by frame, but in a picture, you can look at a picture and you can, you can study it a little more in depth or whatever, and that's what John gives us. He gives us these uh, selective snapshots of the life of Jesus that we can kind of study and get a little more in-depth, all right? So that's why John's a little different in the way it's written than the other three Gospels. And so believe is certainly a major theme uh, that he mentions the word believe almost a hundred times in the Gospel of John. And one of the things that is important before we get into our specific study this morning that we find right out of the box in the Gospel of John is in John chapter 1, verse 1. And there's, uh, when it reads, should be on the screen, John 1, verse 1. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I just want to take a little moment there, uh, and I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here, but it's really important that you understand this, because you'll read that, and you're like, okay, Jesus was the Bible. Well, that's not what that's saying there, all right? What does it mean by the Word? Now, one of the things when you study the Bible, when you read the Bible, you have to live in kind of two worlds, all right? You're between two worlds. You're reading it between two worlds. You live in the world that you're in now, right? But you also need to remember that when the Bible was written and the Gospel of John was written, this was written in the first century. This was written in a completely different time period, frame of reference, culture, politics, everything. So it's helpful to understand when you come to passages, what, what did it mean to them and how do we bridge it to bringing meaning into our life? So the reason this is important because John begins differently 
than those other three Gospels. Uh, the other three Gospels were written primarily to Jews, and one thing that was really important to them was kind of establishing and proving Jesus hereditary as the promised Messiah of Israel. And so uh, two of them spent a lot of time on the genealogy, you know, the birth records of, of Jesus. Mark uh, doesn't so much. But John doesn't want to necessarily establish his earthly hereditary, but John wants to establish his eternal hereditary. You with me? And so the reason I point this out, and the word logos, you know, the New Testament was written in its original form in the Greek language. That was the language of the day. And so the word, if you were to read this in the original Greek, you would see that in the beginning uh, was the word or the logos. In the Greek, it's in arhi ologos. Uh, aren't you impressed with that? Uh, don't ask me to give you much more Greek, but I did learn phonetically that first part there. But it means the word in the Greek language is logos. Now that is an, a very important concept to the Greek culture that, that John was writing to. John's feature is, remember John 20 verse 31, he's writing so that you would believe. Now who is he writing to? Even though there's certainly he's, he's keeping in mind his fellow Jews, but the, but the culture, John is recognizing that he wants to reach into the non-Jewish culture and persuade those who are not Jewish, who are Gentiles, or uh, they're Greek. You know, again, Rome is kind of the, is the dominating power of the day. They're in control. But the culture, the language, the arts, the education, all those things is Greek. Uh, the Greek language, the Greek arts, the Greek philosophy, all those things. So in the schools for, 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 for a century at least, uh, that uh, the, Greek, uh, the Greek culture and the language and everything, that was held in high esteem. That's what your kids went and that's what they learned, all right? Because that was kind of the international language uh, of the day. And so this word that John intentionally used here when he said, in the beginning was the Logos, immediately to a Greek non-Jewish mind, that would catch their attention. Because in the, and again, I don't want to get too philosophical, but if you don't, we don't point this out, this won't mean anything to you. That in the, in the day, in the Greek way of thinking, remember, they didn't necessarily believe in a personal God. You remember when Paul went to Athens and he was astounded in Acts 17 about all the gods that they had and he commemorated their unknown god altar, you know, because they were just saturated in, in, in Athens. That was the capital of Greece. So they didn't really have a concept of a personal god, but they had developed philosophically this idea of a logos. That means that that was just kind of, if you could say it in our language, that just said that there's like a, a, a the giant mind that controls everything. It wasn't necessarily a personal being, but it was kind of like this impersonal force that's out there that gives us knowledge and gives us understanding into everything, and they called that the Logos. Now, here's what's really cool about what John did. One of the things I remember, and some of you, if you ever took speech or uh, public speaking or whatever, one of the things, or Toastmasters, I know some have done that, one of the things they always teach you in there is that when you're getting ready to give a talk or a speech, you want to have a hook, a hook. In other words, sometimes they tell you, you know, tell a joke, tell a personal story. What you want to do is you want to give people, when you get up to talk, give them a reason to listen. Why should I pay attention to you? What is, why am I, 
you're going to give me a talk on widgets. Why should I care? And so you might tell them something. The son says, hey, that sounds interesting. I think I'll pay attention. John, this is John's hook. Because he took something. What is he doing? He's gonna, he wants them to do what? John 20, 31. He wants them to do what? Believe. But they don't even have, they don't have like the knowledge of the Old Testament or the Jewish history. So he can't begin there. So he starts, listen to this, he starts from the known to lead them to the unknown. What does he do? He starts with something they're familiar with, i.e. the Logos. This concept that nobody could really define. I'm sure if you asked 100 people in in the day, they'd give you 100 different versions. But it was just kind of this unknowable, knowable force knowledge that's out there. We can't tell you what it is but we just know it provides the meaning behind everything that exists. That's probably the easiest way to say it. And here's what John does. He says, you know that Logos? That thing y'all can't define and controls everything? I'm going to tell you who that is. I'm going to tell you the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. Yeah, okay, we know that. And the Logos was with God. God, what God? And the Word, the Logos, was God. You see, John starts with something they knew, something they were familiar with. Why? Because he wants to lead them down a path to believe about Jesus as God. That's really important as we begin this morning. Because what he's doing is he's establishing that this Jesus I'm going to teach you about, this Jesus I'm going to write about, these snapshots of Jesus' life, this Jesus is someone you can trust. That what he says about himself, that you can trust that what he says about himself is true. And so John, right from the beginning, begins with establishing that this logos, this undefinable concept that Greeks had, they're going to discover who this logos is. They're going to discover that it's none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and not just Son of God, but He is God of very God, and that's what John is wanting to take his hearers. Now, that's really cool because we live in a day in which it is a challenge to talk about Jesus to a culture that's grown, that has become more and more ignorant, and I don't say that disrespectfully, but unknowledgeable of just the very basic things that we took for granted. Many of us grew up in a time and a culture. Some of you, I don't have this memory because I I think it was a year when the, or maybe I was not even a year when the court, uh, when they uh, took, you know, prayer, the Supreme Court took it out, I think it's 62 or 63. And some of you remember going to public schools. How many of you remember going to public schools and them opening in, in prayer and the Pledge of Allegiance? See, I have no concept of that. I didn't grow up in a time, most of us didn't do that. Now, dare you even talk about religion, Right? Unless you have a Satanist club, they seem to, you know, give those people a free, you know, that kind of craziness. But you talk about Christianity or, you know, we just live in a completely different day. And we have, we have a third, fourth, fifth generation that have grown up with not just the things that we kind of took for granted in kind of a general culture about God, the Bible, Jesus, Christmas, all those things that have become such a challenge in our culture. We, in our culture, have become much more secularized in the last 50 years. We've moved away, and almost not just moved away, but almost a hostility towards anything that would even resemble the Christian Judeo culture and ethic, all right? 
So here's John giving us right out of the box a great example of something that if you want to communicate the truth about Jesus, you need to figure it, find a place to start with something that's familiar in order to lead to something that's unfamiliar. He shows us that, he's, and, and the, the Gospel of John, again, is, is one of the great texts in Scripture because it, it, it demonstrates how to witness for Christ. I say witness, I don't mean going out and knocking on, I'm just saying how to speak about Jesus to people in a culture who start from zero. I remember sharing the gospel with a couple in South Carolina that we went and visited, and they were from North Korea. The dad was being paid by the North Korean government to get his PhD in mathematics at the University of South Carolina. And for whatever reason, we, we had their number and went and visited the mom and the little girl that was there, and somehow it was a contact through an international ministry that we were there. And boy, it was a challenge to try to talk about any of these things to people that just had, they could speak some English, but they just had no frame of reference. I mean, you, where do you begin? And somehow we got talking about Jesus, and the woman jumped up and ran over and got this VHS cassette. So you know that was back in the turn of the century, right? Um, and it was the Superbook story of Easter. And her little girl loved that video. Well, guess what? That became my starting place. I want to tell you about that Jesus. See, that's where John begins this morning. So this morning in our outline, if you have your Bibles, use the study guide I gave you. You'll be a much more engaged listener. You'll get more out of the message, and uh, that's why I put it in there. But I want to share with you this morning uh, three truths. The title of the message that I changed it from your outline, the title of this morning's message, if they'll put it up there so I remember what I wrote, the truth we can trust. The truth we can trust. Number one, notice number one, the truth we can trust is the truth we can trust is that Jesus is God. The truth that we can trust is that Jesus is God. In verses 1 through 3 of John 1, and I'll look at John 1 again. They'll put it back up there. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, that's the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is John saying right out of the box? He's wanting them to know that he was not only with God, but Jesus, this Jesus that I'm going to tell you about, he was God. It's a snapshot, if you will, of when we talk about the Godhead, the, the Trinity. Now, again, we don't have time to get into the Trinity, but I just want you to see a little piece here of where the Bible does talk about, uh, you know, addresses the, the Trinity. The Trinity is not uh, explicitly uh, you can't go to a verse and say, uh, here it is, the Trinity. Uh, but we see the collection, it, it's certainly developed and clear when you study the nature of God. And that the God, the triune Godhead, is one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God manifested in three persons. And so we see that Jesus is identified as the Word, uh, the Logos, but he's also identified as being with God. But he's also <coughs> identified as being God. Now, there's different ways that people have tried to get us to understand the Trinity. But here, you know, I, I've, you know it's like, how, how can we fathom? Listen, I'm glad that I can't fathom the mind of God. I'm glad that God is so separate and beyond my little puny brain and my rationality that I can't figure him out. You know, that's a, that's a good thing. That means he's way ahead of me and you, right? 
And, and I always say us trying to communicate or, or trying to understand God is like me standing over an anthill and, then, and me talking to them about uh, how, to, how to program their computers. And you say, that's absurd. Of course it's absurd. Because by nature, we are so completely apart. And that's just a, an easy way for us to understand how separate we are from God. We're like a, on that little ants on the anthill, and, and God is talking about something that those ants can't even... I mean, you get it? It's so absurd. But that's what makes this story so amazing, that this God who is completely separate from us chose to come. Come into our anthill, if you will. And I don't say that in any disrespect. All right? So... We talk about the truth that we can trust is that Jesus is God, the triune Godhead. Some people try to explain the Trinity in giving pictures like water can be, uh, you know, three different parts. It can be ice, liquid, and steam, but it's all water, you know. Some people use that. You know, like me as a, as a man, I'm a father, uh, I'm a son, I was a grandson, I'm a husband. I'm, in other words, I'm one person, but I have different, and, and again, that that isn't perfect, but uh, but listen, it, it, the Trinity is something that is taught about the nature of God, that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we see there in John 1 that as he will identify this Jesus later on uh, in the verses, that this Word was with God and the Word was God. He's establishing that. But he also tells us something else. He says, in the beginning, in the beginning. We always think Jesus began in Bethlehem, Right? In a cradle. No. That's where we see the start of his earthly ministry, if you will. But if Jesus is going to be God, if he is going to be God, a very God, there was never a time he did not exist. He has no beginning. He has no end. Jesus is identified in the Revelation as the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end, even though that's, there is no beginning and end with Jesus. So his very nature of God is that in the beginning, Jesus existed. He wasn't created. Some false religions teach about Jesus being created uh, later. But it also tells us in verse 3 about his identity and why we can trust him uh, as God. Is It says in verse 3, all things were made through him. What, is that? what else does that information tell you about who this Jesus is? That Jesus is the agent of... He actually is the creator of this world. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But we know that certainly that you can't necessarily slice the Godhead up, but in the sense of who was the creator and who wasn't. But it's saying that Jesus was the instrument that God used, if you will, to create the world. He is the creator uh, all things were made through Jesus. This is something that uh, the early church believed. In fact, in Colossians 1, Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 16, he tells us, for by him, he's talking about Jesus, all things were what? Created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and don't miss this, and they were created for Him. All things were made through Christ. And so we can trust. What John is saying is that Jesus is God, a very God. 
He's 100% man, and he's 100% God. He didn't wake up one day and said, I think I'll flip my God switch on today and be God. You say, well, I don't understand that. Well, I don't understand it either. I'm just presenting the picture that the Bible presents of Jesus in that he is God. And so what we see here in these first few verses is that God came into the world. God came into the world, and he came into the world in Jesus Christ. Now, why is that important? Is that just some abstract theology for, you know, rocks to think about at night? Is that just some kind of mystery out there that really has no semblance on any uh, practical level? Uh, when I wake up tomorrow morning, is, is any of this going to be really meaningful or have any connection? Well, yes, it does, because it tells me right from the get-go that this Jesus, God of every God, the Bible tells us there in John 1, is that it is this Jesus that I recognize that Jesus Christ sought relationship with me. That Jesus came for me. That this Jesus that I have accepted in my life, who's my Lord, my Savior, my best friend, that this Jesus is the one who is the creator of all things. And when I talk about being creator of all things, that means he is Lord over all. And if he is Lord over all, guess what, guys? He is Lord and creator and sovereign in control of your life. That means that this Jesus, there's not a facet of your life. There's not a renegade molecule. There's not a, a, a germ cell. There's nothing that can come against you or in you or whatever that this sovereign God in Jesus is not an absolute total control. And yet, this God who is creator has chosen and taken the initiative to be personal in my life. That should get an amen from somebody. Somebody wake up. You know, if you're quiet, I'll just preach longer. So don't... Uh... So here, here, here's the connection. Listen to this. Why does this matter? Why does it matter? Because maybe you're, maybe you're struggling as a parent... This morning. Well, the truth that we just see from John is that this Jesus, God of very God, is in control of all things. That means he's in control of your family. He's in control of your children. You maybe have kids that are out of control, but God's in control. Your work life, your job, the uncertainty, God's in control. Your marriage relationship, God's in control. You see, right out of the box, what are we learning about Jesus? Is that He's God. He's not just some religious figure and prophet just hovering the earth five feet off the ground and, and dispensing some teachings and some healings. No. He is God, a very God, that God has taken the initiative to come to us. And so notice, secondly, the truth that we can trust is not that Jesus, not only is Jesus is God, but in verses 4 through 13, the truth we can trust is that Jesus is life. Jesus is life. What do we mean by that? Well, look at verses 4 and 5 of John 1. In Him, in Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In Him was the life, and the life was the light. You know, it reminds me that 
in John 1, it, it, it kind of reminisces about uh, the way that the book of Genesis begins. In the beginning, God, you know, in the beginning, God declared light. Well, we find something very similar. Maybe that's in John's, um, you know, maybe as he's writing, maybe he has that, I'm sure, as a good Jewish uh, uh, man, he certainly has that, maybe it's certainly familiar, but it reminisces of, of, that, uh, of that in the beginning. Well, he says, in the beginning, writing about Jesus, Jesus came into the world and Jesus was life and he was the light coming. Why, why do you need light? You need light to see. Light is only necessary in darkness. Right? I don't need life on a hot summer Florida day outside. I need life in a place of darkness. Jesus came not just to be who was life, but that very life permeated light. Now what we see in verses 4 through 13 that you'll notice is something that John shows that there are four different responses to the light or the life that people have. Four different responses. And one of the things that we find all through the Gospel of John is the Gospel of John is not addressed to people just to leave it and walk away and say, oh, okay, that was interesting, what's next? It always pushes for a response. It always pushes to what, remember the question Jesus asked in Matthew 16 to his, uh, to his followers? Who do men say that I am? And they were really quick to talk about, well, the word on the street is, you're this, that, and the other. But then he says, and he says it still today to everyone here, who do you See, who do you say that I am? John's wanting you to trust in Jesus and make the right response. Notice in verses 6 through 7, we see one response, and that is this man that we'll see next week called John the Baptist, John the ba Baptizer. There was a man sent from God, verse 6, whose name was John. Now, this is not the same John, Apostle John, all right? This is the John the Baptist. Verse 7, John the Baptist, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light and all, that all might believe through him. So John the Baptist, that was his goal. And that's, every, that's the goal of every believer that wants other people to believe in this Jesus. So the first response is, is are those who are humble enough to point and recognize and be a witness about Jesus. That's one response. And we'll see more about John the Southern Baptist next week, all right? But secondly, there's another response in verse 9 and 10. The second response that we see of people to Jesus, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And again, humanity, mankind, people kind, living in darkness, the sin resulted in Spiritual darkness, okay, where people living. The light came, and the light was meant to give light to everyone, to point them out of the darkness. Listen, if you're in a dark room, how do you recognize, uh, how do you not recognize the light? How is it they miss the light of Jesus? Well, they miss the light of Jesus because the Bible says that outside of God's intervention, we are blind. We do not have the ability in and of ourselves to see the light. And so the light shines, but in our blindness, we can't see the light unless the Lord opens my eyes. 
The Bible says that without God in our lives that we are blind. We need God's grace. And so even though that the light came, they did not recognize Him because they loved darkness, one version says. But notice the third response in verse 11. It says that He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. Who is He talking about? He's talking about the Jewish people. Jesus was Jewish. He came to His own. He was the promised Messiah. He was the one foretold in the Old Testament that was to come, that was to redeem Israel, that was going to establish a kingdom, that would, uh, the kingdom of David that would last forever. The earthly kingdom of David couldn't do that because David died. But he was going to reign in the, in, the, in the sense of David because that's all that they knew and understand. And it was like, you, you think David's reign was glorious? You hadn't seen nothing yet. You don't know about the reign of Jesus that's coming. That's the one they were anticipating. But it says that when he came, he came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. You remember even at the... Um, in the birth uh, story, I believe in, in, uh, uh, in, now I'm not sure if it's Matthew or Luke, because there's, there's similarities. But when Herod uh, inquired among the Jewish teachers, because they heard about this king that was going to be born, and remember these wise men, they were there to see the birth of the king, and he was like, hey, we need, what's going on there? And they came and said, yeah, you know, the scriptures, they didn't have any interest, they had the information but here you had these wise men that weren't even Jewish seeking God, and you had the very people that had all the data, the knowledge, and they could care less about seeking the king. Isn't that the way it usually works? It's the people that are the most unlikely that we see hungry after God. And so he came to his own. His own didn't receive him. They didn't receive the light. Now, it doesn't, now that's different than being exposed to the light. They didn't receive it. If you don't receive something, if I give you an opening, a light, if, I'm in, if you're in a dark room and I provide a light of, of a way out and you turn your back to the light intentionally, that's a little different and maybe even more serious to reject and have the, the, the truth and yet you reject the one that this truth was pointing to throughout the centuries. He came to his own. But then it says, fourthly, there were some who did receive him. In John 1.12, but to all who did receive him. There were those who did receive him. <laughs> that to all who did receive him, who believed, there it is again, believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Everyone who trusts in Jesus becomes a part of God's family. What a wonderful truth. I tell you, that's a great scripture to get in your memory banks or know where it is in scripture because you, you don't have to give the address and say, well, you know, in John 1.12, but you can, you can, as you talk with people, and they say, well, hey, isn't, aren't we all children of God? You know, really, that's not true. We're all created by God. But this, this might push back on the idea that we are naturally children of God because it makes a distinction here that says only those who receive him it says he gave the right to what become the children of God do you see that 
If I don't receive him, I can't go around claiming I'm a child of God. I can't go around claiming I'm part of God's family when I have not received him. Received him means that I accept him, I take him, and I trust him as my Lord and Savior. And don't miss this other, this other part in verse 12. It says that not only did they, uh, but all who received him, all who accepted him, all who recognized him for who he is, who believed in his name, it says that he, he, God, gave the right. What did we learn uh, this past Wednesday in experiencing God? Is that God always takes the initiative. Right? God gave me the right to become a child of God. It wasn't something I earned. It wasn't something I deserved. It wasn't something I earned enough points with. And it wasn't something that because I was born in a certain type of family in a certain nation or whatever, that somehow I, I was predisposed. No. It means that if I'm a child of God, if I am a believer, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I know what the Scripture would later tell me, for it is by grace that I am saved, and that is not of myself. It's a gift of God. And so God has given those who receive them the right to become children of God. Don't miss that. So important. 1 John 3, 1 reiterates this. I, he, when Same author, but in a different letter. He writes in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has, what? Given to us. Given to us. For God so loved the world that He, what? He gave His only begotten Son. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Born of God. When we come to John 3 and we talk about uh, uh, in John chapter 3 where Jesus says you must be born again, it literally means to be born from above. It's not something you're doing of self. It means to be born from above. Something that God, as we, as we saw in our Experiencing God study this past Wednesday, God always takes the initiative. Jesus said in John 6, no one can. That talks about ability. That talks about our being blind, living in darkness. No one can come to the Father unless the Father, what? Draws them. You see, God always takes the initiative. That didn't make us proud. That didn't make us boastful. But just say, God, if you haven't intervened and rescued my life, I'd be without hope. Because I certainly wouldn't have sought you. I was blind. In fact, the Bible even goes further in being blind. The Bible says that we are dead in our sins. We do not have the inner ability naturally to respond. We need God to take the initiative if there's to be hope in our life. And I hope that you've made that trust in the God who saved you. Not in yourself, not in your righteousness, but you're growing in this trusting in Jesus that He's my life. He's the life He's the light of my life. He's the life that I have. I'm a child of God, not because of what I did for Him. No, I am a child of God because of what He gave me, what He did to, uh, for me by His grace. And there's a third truth that we see here in John chapter 1, and that is the truth that we can trust. John's wanting us to trust the truth about Jesus, and this third truth 
is that Jesus became human. Verses 14 through 18. In John 1.14, and the word, the Logos, became flesh or human. Now think about this. John has established Jesus as creator, pre-existent, before the word existent even existed. Think about that. And yet, he says that this word took on flesh. If you're going to come to earth, if you're going to minister on earth, you need a body. He isn't presenting Jesus as some kind of little apparition that floats around to different people. He became, he became a human and he dwelt among us. Now I love, this is one of my favorite words in the Bible, is this word dwelt. It has a marvelous picture. Now again, I, I said that John generally, again, he, he's, he's not just, he, he, he's writing to, to non-Jews and Jews kind of at the same time, but it isn't that a Jew couldn't read this and, and still pick up a lot. Now, this here really is something that a Jew would be a hook for them, just like I was saying about the Logos for the, for the Greek, because they don't have any basis, to, and he just starting from the known to the unknown. What does he mean by that little word dwelt? If you have your Bible, I'd, I'd circle that word because I'm going to tell you something. If you're not aware of this, something really cool. That in the, uh, again, the original language, the Greek, the word dwelt means that is the term pitched tent or tabernacled, set up house. The word became flesh, became human. And dwelt among us. The Word, God a very God, pre-existent, God with God, all that He said in the marvelous truths about who Jesus is, that this God, so separate, came in human form, not form, but became a human, and He pitched His tent. He set up residence, if you will, where we live. Where do we live? We live in darkness. We live in sin. We live in brokenness. How is it that God's going to reach down into that, that anthill, if you will? It may sound crazy, but he's like, I'll become an ant. I mean, that's absurd, but it's not any more absurd than the idea of God becoming a man. Why? Because God was, and again, we'll, we'll see this drawn out. But he came and dwelt among us. Now, to the Jewish mind, here's what they would see. When they saw pitch tent or tabernacled, what did that take their mind back to? Remember in the Old Testament when God established in, with Moses that, that he would establish a meeting place where you will come and I will be there? And you will meet with me, you will worship me. In that, you know, uh, some of us, if you've ever been to, was it, uh, was it Tarpon Springs? We went to that life-size model of the Old Testament tabernacle in the wilderness that's built out there. And you can take a tour of it. And it's great. And if you haven't done it, I would recommend it. But he established, what was that? That was a tent. What was the tent for? To meet me. God says, you 
can meet me in a limited way. You can't go in the Holy of Holies because of my holiness and the separation of my presence. And so to the Jew, they would immediately recognize that term, pitch tent. Fast forward, New Testament. God says, I'm not establishing a tabernacle, a temple, even though temporarily he did operate in those means. Now, I'm coming to you. Old Testament, God presented a means in which you could come to him. New covenant, what has God done? He's come to us. He's pitched his tent in my life and in your life. I don't know about you, but, well, I shouldn't say this. Let me reword it. Somebody will be. I'll just say it this way. <laughs> There's some people you know you wouldn't live with them. How about that? Can we be in agreement with that? You got family members you go and visit, and you always get a hotel. Because you just, you're not doing that. Can't do it. Life's too short, right? Guess what? Think about, think about what God knows about us. And God, in His love and grace, chose to pitch tent into our lives. Why? To reach us, to love us, to model what God was like. And all through the truth of the teachings of Jesus, He's always modeling the Father of what God's like. God doesn't cross the other side of the road to avoid the bleeding, hurting man who's dying, the Samaritan. The Samaritan who came along and rescued that, that man that was wounded. God is the one that gets his hands dirty. God is the one that gets his life dirty and yet remains pure and holy and clean in the process because he's God of very God. He came and pitched tent. He came and became human just like us. He came and so that the Jew, they would, they would, they would see that and immediately a word picture would, would connect him to this, the idea of the presence of God. You see, in the Old Testament, God showed his presence in the tabernacle. And Jesus has come into the world as God to present to the world in Jesus Christ who God is. He has come in human flesh. He's not a ghost. He's not an apparition. He is man of very man and yet God of very God. And he's also talking about his presence that we understand. And this is something we'll see later in the Gospel of John. Is that Jesus said something really interesting in John 16, 7. I'm not sure. Yeah, I had it on the screen. <clears throat> no, no, go back. That's not the right verse. Sorry. I thought I had it on there, but that's later. John 16, 7. You remember when Jesus said this? John 16, verse 7. When Jesus was talking about his crucifixion and talking about leaving his disciples, he said something really interesting. He said, it is to your advantage. It is to your advantage that I go away. Because when I go away, I will send the helper. Who's the helper? The Holy Spirit. You've had me among you. It's as if he's saying, you've had me with you, among you. But when the Holy Spirit comes, sometimes translated the advocate, maybe your version, or the helper. 
You're not going to just have my presence among you. You're going to have my presence in you. And he said, that's better. That's better. Now think about the, the, the dwelling tent. It isn't that you just go someplace to meet God. Sometimes we think, oh, if I could just live back in those days. I don't want to live back in those days. It's better. Why is it better? Because I'm not going to meet God. God has come to meet me and live inside of me. By His Spirit. He says, Jesus said, that's better. That's to your advantage that I ascend. And you know what happened when He ascended there in Acts chapter 1? He sent the Spirit that was poured out. You see, that's what is one of the distinguishing marks of Christianity. Listen to this. Think about religions in general. Think about even false Christian religions. This is always a mark you get attention or pay attention to, but especially other religions. Some people say, oh, you know, we're all, we're all seeking after God. Listen, all religions other than Christianity are built upon a premise of how I can work my way to God. Right? Christianity's totally opposite. It's about a God who has come to us. Come to pitch tent where we live. You think you got a messy life? Jesus came to pitch tent in your mess. To keep you in your mess? No. No. To get you out. Jesus came on a as a rescuer, on a rescue mission. That's the wonderful truth. Of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's something else here. Now go to that verse in John 1, 16 and 17. Sorry. They always have to. Boy, they got a tough job up in that media booth. They got to follow me and that's crazy. I know. But look at this verse in John 1, 16, 17. This is just kind of wrapping up towards the end here. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came Through Jesus Christ. Now something he brings up, and we uh, may will see this from time to time. It's the idea, or the he's talking about law and grace. Law was the was the demand. Law is demand. Grace is the supply. If I um, if I said afterwards today, I'm going to take all of you out to eat, and we're going to go. Seabrights, we'll go to Harry's. That's our favorite place. Only problem, we come out of the Harry's and we're all leaving. I don't have any money. And you're going to like, I don't know who he is. I don't have the supply to meet the demand of the bill. You with me? I'll say, but do you take credit cards? Yeah, we take credit cards. Well, the credit is a different way of meeting the demand. The gospel of Jesus Christ meets the demand of the law. The law required death. I don't have any credit in and of myself, but I can use the credit of Jesus and His righteousness to do what? To pay and meet the demand the law requires. So the law was given through Moses but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has brought the supply 
in abundance that we need, that we will need, that we did need. Because the law's requirements we could not meet. But based upon Jesus' gold platinum card, if you will, I can be credited as righteousness. That's what we talk about justification by faith. Law is demand. Grace is supply. You see, Jesus said, in, or the John wraps it up in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God. Notice that. Not many gods. God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let me give you one little other word there. And I think it's in your outline there. It's the word we get exegete. Not execute, exegete. If you know, been around Bible study or whatever, and you study a passage, you want to exegete the passage. What does that mean? It means you want to make the passage. What I'm trying to do in John 1, I am exegeting John 1 verses through 1 through 18. I'm exegeting that. What am I doing? I'm making it known to you. Jesus exegeted God. What did he do? He has made God known. You want to know what God is like? Do you remember later on, Philip comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I don't know if you're giving out requests today or wishes, but I got one. Will you show us the Father? And if you read it, do you remember Jesus' reaction? Now, the language kind of cleans it up, like, how long have I been with you? Now, I don't know if he was, you know, being Jewish. He said, oh, hey, you know, I mean, I don't mean like, are you kidding me? Have I not been with you this long that you ask me that kind of question? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Is he saying I'm the... No, because what has he done? He has come that he has made him known. So, you don't know who this God is. Jesus is revealing not only what God is like, but he's revealing the true God for you to hitch your wagon to for all eternity. You see, one of the, the worst things you can do is to hitch your eternal wagon to a false Messiah or a false Jesus. And John 1, in all throughout John, is going to belabor in a very snapshot way the truth about Jesus' Jesus's identity. And let me close with this. This is, this is why this is so important. Now, next week and the weeks ahead, we won't be quite as in the weeds of stuff, but this is just the way it is, all right? You cannot... Well, you ever heard the phrase people say... And I, 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 drives me crazy when they say, well, uh, my truth, this is my truth. This is my truth. I mean, you know, you're, in, you're, in, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts, okay? So when they say my truth, that means like, well, I know what the Bible says, but my truth imagine going to, you know, a guy building your home, a construction, and I say, well, I know that a foot is 12 inches, but my truth is 14 inches. I mean, you're going to have a weird-looking house. You see, there is a standard of truth. 
That's lost in our culture today. Totally lost. We won't even get into that. People talk about believe the science. <laughs> they don't believe the science. You can't even figure out who's a man or a woman. Right? But here, how many of you know what Build-A-Bear is? Grandparents, you've been snookered out of a lot of money in Build-A-Bear, right? Build-A-Bear. You see, that's the way people have a concept of Jesus, like Build-A-Bear. What do you do with Build-A-Bear? You go in there and you're like, oh, let's see, I want this bear with these eyes and that mouth and those ears, you know. You build it according to your wants and tastes. And you get this little cuddly bear for whatever ridiculous amount of money it was. Thankfully, I'm a, we're not quite out of the Build-A-Bear stage, so I better not disparage it too much. There's no Build-A-Savior. Do you hear what I'm saying? There's no Build-A-Savior. You either take the truth that's presented in Scripture, the truth of what we've read about Jesus' identity, or you re reject it. You receive it, you receive the light, or you reject the light. There's no build a Savior. And if you do not know this Jesus that's presented here at the very beginning of John 1, because, you see, if we don't lay the foundation, and that's what John is saying, if we don't get the fact of establishing who Jesus is, He's not a God. He is the God. God of very God. If we don't establish that at the very beginning, then everywhere else we go in the next 21 chapters isn't going to make sense or line up. If you don't get the truth and the trust of who Jesus is. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.